Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, everybody. Cheryl Atkinson here with another episode of Full Measure After Hours. Today, we're going to tackle the topic of government surveillance abuses, which is not just a 2016 phenomenon. This has been going on for quite some time. Joining me is David Bernkoff. And the reason I asked David to join us again, not only is because he's so popular as an investigative producer. Say hello. I get so many emails. I know you do. (laughs) But also because he produced a story with me for full measure about government surveillance abuses. And as we're recording this, which is Friday, January 10th, I don't see it reported anywhere else, but I made a note that this was the deadline that the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act Court, the FISA Court, gave the FBI to present them with fixes for the abuses that were identified by the Inspector General recently. The abuses were, among other things, providing inaccurate information, in a wiretap application for Carter Page, a Trump campaign volunteer, uh, presenting information that was out of context and presenting false information that had been doctored by an FBI lawyer. So I guess we're not necessarily going to see this grand plan that the FBI has to submit, but it was originally due today. What are you showing me here? Did they? I'm just going to do a uh, search through our vast archives and uh, Nexus, which is a system we use to check to see whether anyone has written anything even about the deadline. So I'm going to do that right now. Okay. You'll probably find only Cheryl Atkinson has. And I searched the FISA court website this morning to see if anything had been filed. I mean, it's not unusual that information wouldn't be filed right away. Sometimes it has to go through a declassification process. But while you're looking it up, I will tell you that this seems a little empty to me, just knowing some of the history, which was... Starting way back in 2000, 2001, 2002, there was a very similar scandal. The FBI had gotten caught submitting incorrect information in wiretap applications, and it was a big internal scandal. The FISA court ordered them to take care of business, do something about it, just like they're saying now. And the answer at the time was the FBI came up with these Woods procedures, a list of new procedures and safeguards that were devised by a guy named Michael Woods, who was an FBI technical guy Mm -hmm. that came up with some of these things. So this was supposed to end all the problems, that there's these special forms that have to be filled out, verifications done all the way to the top. Not a single unverified fact is allowed to be presented to the FISA court in a wiretap application. So fast forward, you know, 15, 16 years later, that's exactly what happened. So if the court is, again, relying on the FBI to fix itself, monitor itself, come up with your own plan... I don't see how that's very different. What, what did you find on your search? As of noon today, the only notice is that the Associated Press has put out on its 
list of things to watch out for today, that today is the day that it's supposed to happen. There's no coverage of it. And I just checked again the court's website, and there's nothing posted as of noon today. I mean, this is actually a huge thing. The FBI being told to come up with new processes, kind of on the spot, they were only given a couple of weeks, to fix these really, really major abuses. Meantime, on a separate track, Congress is going to have to consider, some are already talking about, whether to revamp or rehaul the whole government surveillance system. And every time they talk about it, I know a little bit of inside talk on this because I've spoken with members from both parties, they get lobbied heavily not to change anything. They get lobbied by intelligence community officials, intelligence community interests. One member told me that when they're a new member of Congress, one of the first things that happens to them is, some of them, they sit down and there's a meeting with a high-level intelligence official who brings in a video on a computer or on the phone, shows the video of the poor people in the 9-11 Twin Towers jumping out on fire and says, if you limit our 702 surveillance authority, as they call it, or if you limit our authority, the next time something like this happens, that's on your head. And the member of Congress who told me this said he really felt it was insulting to be sort of bullied as he saw it in this way because he said, if you have a logical argument to make, make it. But don't come in here and show me a video and play on emotion and tell me that we shouldn't be doing better oversight of government surveillance. So I, before we go over a few instances over time of the record of government surveillance abuses, I wanted to ask David, when, what year did you leave CNN? Dave and I worked together at CNN years ago. I left before he did. I left in 2000, at the end of 2001. Do you remember you know, when you were still covering news at CNN, there being discussion about possibility of surveillance abuses. I mean, really, there was concern after the 9-11 terrorist attacks when authority was expanded under national security auspices for the government to be able to do more things, listen in to more Americans. Along the way, have you observed some of this rhetoric or coverage? You know, I remember it more as a historic uh, thing that over time, usually years, sometimes decades later, we learned about surveillance abuses. So you learn decades after Martin Luther King has died that the FBI was pretty much wiretapping him. I don't know that they had any legal uh, approval to do it uh, and following him almost nonstop. And it was for political reasons. You had, again, historically during Watergate, you had a Justice Department head, the Attorney General, who was uh, involved in a, in a criminal enterprise, essentially, uh, against the Democratic Party. But those were things that you learned. It took a long time to learn them. And what I find kind of interesting as I watch what's going on today is that the Democrats were traditionally the party that was so skeptical of the intelligence system. The FBI was uh, abusing uh, people on the left at the time. Uh, again, the Nixon administration was uh, using the IRS and the FBI to, to surveil and harass reporters. And so you learn these things and you're like, oh, well, we're all skeptical now. And somehow that skepticism in the era of President Trump has disappeared and now they kind of support 
the CIA and the FBI, well, how could they ever be wrong when everybody knows they've historically been wrong? And the flip side to that is that Republicans were traditionally the party that you have to trust the intelligence agencies. You have to trust what they say. And now, because President Trump doesn't seem to want to trust those agencies, Republicans have flipped to the old Democratic position of being suspicious of all these agencies. And it just makes me wonder whether... There's, it's ever possible to have an actual uh, fair discussion, even in the halls of Congress, about what to do about FISA court abuses or any of these abuses, because people... They're just going to face off politically. Yeah. I think that's... And we a- all know, and I think this is really clear from this report, there's no question that the FISA court process, even more so than regular court processes, is easy to manipulate because it's done largely in secret. I was tipped off some years ago before the 2016 campaign by insiders, people who have signed wiretap applications, made wiretap applications, who work in the intel community. And they told me it is it had not become uncommon for these to be widely misused, for false information to be submitted knowingly because these agents submitting the false information who really want the wiretap to listen into somebody for political reasons, let's say, that will never be examined in normal circumstances. Because of the nature of the FISA court, it's not a criminal court of prosecution where the evidence will be turned over and someone will get to examine it. You'll never see the evidence for this stuff if they're just using wiretaps for improperly political observation. So this stuff can be submitted to the court with no oversight or checks and balances later by the victim of the wiretapping because they'll never see the application. It's very unusual that we even got to see the one that was criticized, the one that was used to wiretap Carter Page, a Trump campaign volunteer. So this, the secrecy surrounding it, coupled with the fact that we're counting on the guys and women to police themselves within the Department of Justice and FBI, and then we now see even the FISA court, which is supposed to be some bit of check and balance, really didn't serve as one at all with these abuses going on sort of under their noses, not questioning things that looked like pretty obvious questions. One example, they are these, the Woods procedures I mentioned. There's a file that's submitted with a wiretap application where the FBI says, these special Woods procedures we created in the early 2000s to stop abuses, they've all been covered here. Here's the file that shows we've checked everything and followed the proper procedures. Well, when the inspector general looked at that file for Carter Page's wiretap applications, it was full of problems. It didn't coordinate properly with stuff that was in the application. Stuff was missing. Stuff was contradictory. So, again, checks and balances are in place. But if you have the same people kind of checking themselves, it's just not effective. Put aside the politically charged paperwork on Carter Page. Cheryl, what do you think is the percentage of FISA court requests on terror issues or on drug uh, crimes, the things that FISA is used for? FISA can't be used on a domestic drug crime. FISA is for but it can be used, national but they've security used terrorism. it for international drug yes. crimes under the guise of yes. it being terrorism. Right, yes. Anyway, so the whole range of things, gang-related also, international gang-related issues sometimes come to the FISA court. What percentage of those requests 
for surveillance do you think would have similar errors to the Carter Page thing, or do you think that's a one-off thing? I know it's not a one-off thing because they've been flagged for it before, and I've, you know, there's been other examples of whistleblowers talking about abuses. How common across the board? Um, it's hard to say. I can tell you that in 2016, and this went largely unreported, the FISA court, one of the FISA court judges, the lead judge at the time, uh, Collier, his first name Rosemary, I think, yeah. she spanked the intel community, particularly the NSA, not specifically necessarily for the wiretap applications, but for related processes of handling intelligence, saying that they had done egregious errors that they had not reported. If they find they've made a mistake or there's an abuse, they're supposed to go to the court right away and say so. Well, they hadn't done it. An inspector general revealed some. They came belatedly to the court in 2016 election year and said, ah, here's some things that we did. And she was outraged. And she said um, this was a raised constitutional concerns, these violations. So, you know, and I think she said in her order that they were more common than had been reported and far more common than she had been led to believe. So just judging from that and knowing that we probably don't know about all the abuses, I think you can assume there are some really serious problems, not just a one-off. Do you have something to say and want to make your own podcast? Let me tell you how to do that for free with Anchor. Anchor has creation tools that let you record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. You can even add any song from Spotify directly to your episodes. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more places. And you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's all you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. I think when you allow any system to operate in the dark, in the secret, could be a corporate thing, it could be a city hall commission. If people are allowed to work without, largely without fear of anyone knowing what they're doing, that leads to shortcuts and abuses almost every time. May I say after 9-11... As just a U.S. citizen, I was one of the ones that said, yes, we have to maybe give up a few rights to allow the government to do a little more than maybe we're sometimes comfortable with to protect our nation, you know, for national security. And I do remember a lot of people, not just Democrats, but a lot of Democrats saying at the time, we don't want to give this power to the government. It's going to be a slippery slope. And I kind of brushed it off at the time and said, that's not necessarily going to happen. You know, this is important. Well, they were right, you know, and and like you said, it's kind of ironic now that the Democrats who made that argument, and I think have proven correct to some degree, are not necessarily making that same argument anymore. They're almost protective of the intelligence agencies, and it's something I wouldn't expect. So I wanted to go over, um, on our Sunday TV program, Full Measure, the date of which will be the 12th? Yes, the 12th of January. January 12th. If you want to see more, we'll have a report on some historical government surveillance abuses, we kind of dissect them, but we're going to go over a couple of them right now, so you don't have to watch the story. Hope hope you do, and it'll be you posted. You should watch the story. <laughs> it'll be posted online later at fullmeasure.news, but I'm going to go back to Salt Lake City, Utah, 2002. There was a National Security Agency whistleblower named Thomas Drake who came forward and said the NSA was actually fine-tuning a new scale of mass surveillance and secretly conducting blanket surveillance 
on the Olympics in Salt Lake City, meaning, he said, virtually all electronic communications going in or out of the area during the Winter Olympics were picked up and monitored. So at the time, Intel officials denied it, but he said that was sort of a test run for mass surveillance. Now let's skip ahead. I'm highlighting just like a couple of noted, fairly well-documented accusations or events. I'm not so sure how well-known these things are, because even in doing this story, it wasn't until you pointed this out that I even remembered the Salt Lake City incident, and I think that's part of the problem here is that because these are things that don't seem to directly involve most people on a daily basis, they're interesting, but you kind of put them out of your mind afterwards. I wonder if people, I mean, remember when Edward Snowden, I don't even get to that in a second, but when he leaked the stuff he did to Glenn Greenwald and Guardian, and there were all these claims that it was going to destroy the country, that would make us all unsafe, and that who knew whether any of it was true? Well, turned out apparently it didn't destroy the country it didn't make us any less safe and not a word of what he revealed has ever been shown to be untrue and the sad part he said in his interview with the guardian that his one of his biggest fears was that all this would be revealed and nobody would do anything about it and i think it's kind of come to fruition sadly um i watched as a reporter at cbs news at the time When this story broke, at first the media was crazed in a proper way, I think. They were covering the story. This was massive to think that the government, now we're used to this notion, but at the time that the government had put out this dragnet, you know, capturing communications secretly of hundreds of millions of Americans in all kinds of ways on the Internet and the phone, that was so shocking. So for a couple of days, you know, it was very hard to understand some of his technical disclosures that he was making. It was very arcane, but people were rightly alarmed. And then I remember the day I felt it all turned around. I think there was an effort to turn it around. I'll call it a propaganda effort. All of a sudden, it became, where is Snowden hiding? I call it, where's Snowden? Like, instead of, where's Waldo? Is he going to Russia? Is he flying on a plane here or there? And at the White House briefings, The talk and the questions changed dramatically from questions about what Snowden had revealed to, we hear he's going to be on a 3 o'clock plane to Russia. Are you following him? Is that true? And I'm thinking, boy, we've really been diverted from the content of what he's saying to this notion that he's a fleeing felon and that's sort of what the story is. And it was never the same after that. No, and it's similar uh, with the WikiLeaks uh, thing where the... Again, no one is, I shouldn't say no one, there might have been a handful of those thousands and thousands of documents that have been questioned. Uh, But that story became, what a weird guy he is. Mm -hmm. Some of it became, did he rape two women in Sweden, which ended up, those charges ended up being dropped. But it really became a question of like how he lived in the Ecuadorian embassy and what, how he treated employees instead of the substance. Right. Controversializing him to sort of destroy WikiLeaks, which had become something a lot of powerful establishment people didn't like. At first, some of them did like it for what he was leaking. But when it got to certain topics and subjects, suddenly a lot of powerful people didn't like what WikiLeaks was doing. And instead of viewing him as a journalist publishing records that turned out to be accurate, he was portrayed as a villain and a traitor and, 
you know, somebody to be prosecuted. So I'm going to go from Salt Lake City to 2009. I didn't know about this case till I was researching for this story, but there was an FBI whistleblower, so we're talking a little over a decade ago, named Shemai Leibowitz, who stepped forward and provided information accusing intel agencies of serious constitutional violations regarding surveillance they were doing and illegal abuse of power. Do you remember that case? Do not no. remember that case. I mean, that would have been, in retrospect... Did not remember that case. Yeah, a big deal. Someone from the FBI that was exposing some of these things. Then, um, I say that there were shades of what was to come in 2016 with some of these next things that we learned about happened because intelligence officials were listening in on members of Congress. Again, something completely unheard of a few years before. That now when you hear it, you're like, well, of course they listen to Congress. Well, they didn't used to listen to Congress or reporters. That was considered off limit. So we, we learned in, let's say, the time period 2009 to 2013, maybe it goes back a little early to 2005 because I know some of this started under Bush, intelligence officials began to listen in on members of Congress, sometimes political rivals. And some examples were members of Congress speaking with American Jewish groups, and foreign officials, including Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. So what they do is the intelligence community will say, well, we weren't really listening to members of Congress. We're monitoring the foreign officials. And if they happen to be talking to members of Congress, how can we help that? That's just part of what happens. But we're listening to their, we're listening to their, their dry cleaner, but they happened to come in and pick up their clothing that day. And right. so we picked up the member of Congress. Yeah, it was, that was all by accident, and we, you know... Initially, they're supposed to destroy that, by the way, that incidental intelligence that they collect, accidentally, you might say, and then come to find out they granted themselves leave to store it and store it longer and longer and then search it through a database and then unmask the names of those Americans who are incidentally captured in communications. So it's really gotten broader and broader. Again, I don't find it at all surprising that People who have the technology and capacity to do these things do these things. What I find surprising is the uh, inability of members of Congress to then act on this once they find out about it. There's news conferences, there's protests, but they don't seem to ever actually take a hard stand. And the media, I would say there's some good reporting, but it's not really as much or as given as much prominence as, as I think it deserves. I think this is one of the biggest stories of our time. And covering, to be fair, covering the intelligence agencies, that's a hard beat because you're covering people who by nature want to keep everything from you. People are taking their careers, uh, really risking their careers if they tell you anything other than what the head of the agency wants you to know. There's a lot of document research goes on. But it's so important. Well, I think what's not hard and what we could do better, when you find an alleged abuse or an abuse that's proven, make it a bigger story than, than just a little back page mention. And you can keep it in the headlines and try to hold people accountable and discuss it. You know, be asking about it. Don't let it just die away. Don't let them wait till the next big news cycle that they know this will go away. When they were listening to members of Congress. The Wall Street Journal had an article, and they had interviewed in 2015 a senior official with the administration who confessed that 
when it started to be learned that some members of Congress were being picked up in intelligence and surveillance, the quote is, it raised fears of an oh shit moment. I'll say shit. I, on a know, podcast. On you a can podcast. Say that. that the executive branch would be accused of spying on Congress. So this is, again, before the 2016 stuff. And then also as proof of this, someone illegally leaked information with some of these private calls that were picked up on, on intelligence surveillance, calls made by Democrat Congresswoman Jane Harmon in one case, Democrat Congressman Dennis Kucinich in another case, and Kucinich even had leaked recordings of his calls with Libyan officials posted on the Internet. So long story short, someone for political purposes had reason to want to expose these conversations by these members of Congress, and they had been recorded, and somebody actually put those out. And you can hear a bit of one of those on our, in yep. our story. Yep. Um, journalists were targeted, too. Government agents, we now know in retrospect, there's sort of a flurry of controversies with subpoenas against Fox News reporter at the time, James Rosen, who now works with us here at Sinclair, 20 Associated Press reporters, their phone records were looked at. This was, again, stuff that was just unthinkable just a few years ago because journalists were considered off-limits. Um, they also secretly hacked into government agents and monitored my computers while I worked at CBS News. I'm going to do a separate podcast on that, so look for that soon. And um, I don't know, I think there's a really interesting email that was obtained by WikiLeaks and published um, in 2010. Actually, I think it was published a little later, but the date of the email was 2010. And this tells a big story, but again, did not get a lot of, I've published it quite a few times, did not get as much attention as I think it deserves. The email was internal email with officials from a global intelligence firm that works with the government called Stratfor. Some people call it the shadow CIA. And they're having this conversation, and basically they're talking about government acts of surveillance or other things against journalists, and they laid blame at the feet of the guy who was then Homeland Security Advisor, John Brennan. The email said, quote, Brennan is behind the witch hunts of investigative journalists learning information from inside the Beltway sources. There is a specific tasker from the White House, the email said, to go after anyone printing materials negative to the Obama agenda. And so if true, I think that explains a lot of what was going on during that time period, um, you know, according to this email from Stratfor, and it was posted by WikiLeaks. I do just want to go back, and because I just looked it up mm -hmm. to refresh my memory. The Nixon administration did wiretap journalists, and not only did they wiretap journalists, but they also had the IRS audit some journalists they deemed to be unfriendly. So these things do go back. I'm sure the technology today makes it, easier. Makes it so much easier, and it it may be more widespread uh, and over longer periods of time. I mean, Nixon did it to a specific group of people at a specific time when he felt uh, his administration was under threat. It could be that these things are routinely done on a daily basis now. We don't know. Well, Brennan, after um, he was National Homeland Security Advisor, where the email said he was going after witch hunts of investigative journalists, he went on to head up the CIA and in 2014, the CIA Inspector General did a report that revealed that under Brennan, 
five CIA officials had improperly searched through staff emails of the Senate Intelligence Committee. I mean, again, huge. This, this is just red alarms going off all over the place. At least there should have been, but nobody really talks about that much. At the time, the Senate had an inkling of this and asked Brennan about it. He denied it. Never happened. But once the IG report came out and said it did, Brennan apologized. So then we come up to the James Clapper. I know you remember the James Clapper testimony. Everyone should remember it, and if you don't, you can watch our story because we play a little clip of it again. And it's one of the, for me, it's probably the most interesting modern moment about... Body language. ...how people get <laughs> caught not telling the truth about surveillance and... And yeah, James Clapper is not a happy man when he's being questioned. His tell is, if you watch him, he's literally answering the question one way, giving an incorrect false answer, but his body is just, and you can see, I think it's Mueller sitting next to him, and you can see Mueller in part of the frame looking really, really squidgy and uncomfortable, but mostly you see Clapper... Well, tell him, you can describe this. Clapper is denying at a public hearing in in 2013 under questioning of uh, Oregon Senator Ron Wyden this very fundamental question of whether the NSA, National Security Agency, collects large amounts of data on millions of Americans. And he flat out says, no, sir. And Wyden, knowing, knowing that that is not true, Because he's on the Senate Intelligence Committee and he knows they are. He says to Clapper, it doesn't? And Clapper kind of struggles for an answer and comes up with one of these answers that it doesn't take a great analysis to understand that it's a non-answer when he says, not wittingly, not wittingly. Wittingly, what is it? that? Sort of means yes, but by we're, accident. We're, yeah, it's like a non-answer. And of course, then what happens? It's proven false, and he later apologizes, claiming he misunderstood the question. It's which a pretty clear. Question. If you watch the clip, you you know there's no way to misunderstand the question unless you don't speak the English language. And I'll give you a little inside baseball on that. Wyden had notified the director of national intelligence office, Clapper that he was going to ask that question the day before. So Clapper knew it was coming, and he could have planned a truthful answer. I mean, I think that's probably in retrospect what he wishes he had done. When asked, does the NSA collect this sort of broad data, he could have said something like, I don't want to confirm or deny, but we'll have to go into closed session to discuss this. That would have been okay. But for some reason, he just decided to say no. And what proved that false, it was pretty much rapid succession after that, was... NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden came out June 2013, and his revelations really proved not only was Clapper providing false information to Congress, but what they were doing um, in phone calls and Internet and expanding their ability to, let's say you get a wiretap against one person legally, let's say the intelligence community gets a warrant from the FISA court, they were allowing themselves to listen to people at one time three hops away, which means... They get a wiretap on you, but they allow themselves to then listen in on anybody and examine their stuff if they communicated with you, and then anybody who communicated with them, and anybody who communicated with them who never even met you, perhaps. That way, you could see, you could kind of reverse engineer if you want to listen in on a certain political figure. If you just find somebody somewhere around that person, you don't need a warrant for him. 
get a warrant on somebody else and then pick him up incidentally. And a lot of people think that's what was being done with Carter Page in the 2016 election and others that they were watching and monitoring, that they were really trying to wrap up a broader group of people with one wiretap. It's kind of like a very serious version of the six degrees of separation game. Three hops away gets you to an awful lot of people. I thought somewhere it was two hops was like 25,000 people and three hops was more. So I, I saw some analysis by a technician that said with just a handful of wiretaps, you could actually legally listen to the whole U.S. population, something outrageous like that. So these are all the things done in secret. They're expanding their own authority. It doesn't require congressional approval, a vote from Congress. They don't have to tell us. These are just things that, that they're doing. And I think it's important. We're not suggesting that none of these FISA warrants are appropriate or that none of the investigations are appropriate. They clearly do uh, find uh, potential terrorist plots through this. It's just the question of when of how you run a court in secret, run a system where there's no ultimate or almost never ultimate accountability for what goes on in that court and not have that lead to abuses. We know from the history of every society that if you let people have power long enough and no one is looking over their shoulder, there are going to be people abusing it. So Congress is talking about now with some of this abuse on the record, after having passed up the chance to install better oversight, you know, with the renewal of some of these laws over the years, they're sort of like, well, should we even have a FISA court? We're going to have to decide what to do about all of this. I hate to say it, but just based on recent history, I think our memories are short. I think the interests of the powerful people that get contracts from the intelligence community or whoever they are, are going to be able to stop meaningful reform. I think they'll talk about it. I don't think they'll be able to pass a, a big, you know, whatever you could come up with to have better oversight. I just have a feeling that's probably not going to happen. It's hard to see in this dysfunctional a political situation how a very complex, difficult, controversial issue like this could ever come, a solution could ever come out that could get passed. Uh, it's hard enough to pass the most basic things now. This seems like almost a lost cause. If you want to watch the story again, fullmeasure.news, after this coming Sunday, it'll be posted if you miss it on TV. And David, as always, you add so much to the conversation. With my old history stories. I I'll be talking about my friend Abraham Lincoln next podcast. Okay, we'll be here. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, leave a comment, like it, share it with your friends, and consider subscribing to the Cheryl Ackeson podcast and Full Measure After Hours. Those are two of my podcasts. You can listen to them on iTunes or your favorite distributor, or visit CherylAckeson.com and just look at the podcast tab. You can listen to them right there. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself. Thanks for listening.